Objective of Torah studies is to take a deeper look into the themes of the Torah portion. And to do that, we are going to explore, we usually take a topic or two, but mainly one topic and go deep into that topic. Tonight's topic is all about leadership. There, I've told you too much already. It's about, I'm kidding, I didn't tell you too much. It's about leadership and we're going to explore some really powerful Jewish teachings on leadership, which I think will blow you away. So that is the goal for tonight. Nothing short of mind-blowing ideas. Um, okay, so the context is the story in this week's Torah portion, which, by the way, is a doubleheader, Torah portions, about the building of the Mishkan, the building of the tabernacle. And specifically, the area that we're going to focus on is the discussion about the donations that came in toward the building campaign. But before I get to, the, to all that, that's where we're going. But first, a message from our Torah context. Here is what it says in Pirkei Avot. It says, delve in Torah, delve in it, and delve in it again. D-E-L-V-E, delve. Because why? The Kulaba, because everything is in it. Which means that when you and I study Torah, we are getting wisdom and guidance on everything. We're not just learning some ancient story about a uh, nomadic tribe that was traveling and built a, a temple and needed donations, needed items for it. We are learning life lessons. And like I always say that, you probably have heard me say this before, if we're studying Torah and we're not coming away with practical, relevant, mind-blowing life lessons, we're not doing it right. <laughs> we're just not doing it right. It's in there. And if we can't yet find it, keep on digging and delving, keep on digging inside because it is there. It's the difference between the guys that go with the metal detector on the beach and the person that actually dropped a ring on the beach. You know the difference? You with me on this so far? Yeah. So yeah, people that just take a metal detector, I don't know why I'm going like this, but I think you hold it with two handles. Beep, beep. At least old school ones that I remember, you know, seeing at some point. Yeah, you go in and you, or you go, you walk around and you have no expectation necessarily of finding anything of value. But you're looking. Is that how? Okay. All right. I got it right. So yeah, that's, but that, but you're, you're hoping maybe Afshar, perhaps I'll find something valuable. And how deep are you going to dig? You'll do a superficial, you'll do a superficial check. And if you see something great, if not, you move on because you don't know that something's there, but contrast that with someone who knows they're holding a ring on the beach. Also, they're holding a ring and they're showing it to their friend and it drops Gavald, it dropped, they had in their hands, and then it dropped. Imagine how furiously that person will dig that area up to find the ring because they know it's there. And so when we come, when it when we when we're talking about Torah, it's not a question of, well, maybe there's gonna be a lesson here that's relevant. It's not what's going on here. It's not a maybe, it's a definite, it's not a question. It's an absolute certainty that there are precious diamonds, gems, gold, whatever you want to call it, precious lessons to be found. If you don't see it, you got to keep on digging. That's what we do here in Torah studies. The Torah portions this week are Vayakal and Pekude. It's a double header. It's a double portion. 
Vayakel and Pekude, as I said a, moment, a few moments ago, speak of the building of the Mishkan. A few weeks ago, God told Moses what to tell the people about building the Mishkan, the tabernacle, the sanctuary for God. But in this week's Torah portions, Moses delivers the message and the people actually build it. Well, before you build it, you need materials. And that is the first call that goes out at the beginning of these two portions, the call for materials, the call for donations. We need gold, we need silver, we need copper, we need wool, we need dyes for the wool. We need animal skins, all sorts of things in order to build this Mishkan, build this tabernacle. And this campaign was incredibly successful, perhaps not unparalleled in history. It's at least within Jewish campaigns, a campaign that was so successful that Moses at some point had to say, Genug, genug shine. It's enough. Stop bringing. I happen to know synagogues that every year they have a campaign to burn the mortgage. And every year they're reburning the mortgage. What happened? Who knows? Another mortgage that needs to be burned, more money to be raised. In other words, there's always more opportunities for, for good causes and to, and to raise funds for the community. This project there was such generosity, enthusiasm for it. It was literally more than they could use. And it hit a point where it was enough. Let's jump into our Torah studies text. I am going to share my screen with you. Give me one moment, please. Hold on. Give me one moment as I get this ready for sharing. Okay. Let me see if I can find it. This looks like it's this. Let's see if it is correct. All right. Can you guys see that? Do you see the little uh, Vayako Pekude number 10? Do you see that? Yes, thumbs up. All right. All right. Awesome. Good. I'm going to make it a little bit bigger just so we can all read it. All right, Ray. First of all, it's great to see you. Oh, and you know what? Before we go on, I meant to mention this in the beginning. I want to wish and dedicate this class in the honor and the merit of a Rafua Shalema of, of, of health and healing for Ray's sister, Leah Bas Chav Chaya Rus, right? Did I get that right, Ray? Yes, you did. Okay. Um, your sister should, should, should have all the blessings that she needs. And, um, and indeed, we should, we should only hear good news. I um, also want to mention as well, a um, uh, special mention before we jump into the text and start studying, a mention of Rufua Shlema for um, Yosef Yitzchak ben Hinda Malka. Uh, Rabbi Lu, one of the local Chabad rabbis, um, is in the hospital um, again. He's been in the hospital a few times in the last few weeks, and so he needs um, a Rufua Shlema as well. So in the merit of our Torah study, indeed, may healing be brought to all those who need healing, especially the... Uh, the two very special people that we spoke about just a moment ago. All right, uh, Ray, if you don't mind, please read text 1A. Oh, sorry, text 1. This is the, uh, the text from our Torah portion about the donations that came in. 
Then all the wise men who were doing the work of the holy came, each one from his work that they had been doing. And they spoke to Moses saying, the people are bringing very much more than is enough for the labor of the articles that God had a commanded to do. So Moses commanded and they announced in the camp saying, let no man or woman do any more work for the offering for the holy. So the people stopped bringing and the work was sufficient for them for all the work to do it and to leave over. Thank you, thank you. So what we see here is that the people who are actually collecting and building the Mishkan tell Moses, you gotta call it off. You gotta call off the donations because there's so much being brought in. It's more than what we can use. And indeed Moses calls it off. So that's the first point that we have in today's discussion is that there was a very, very generous, generous response to the call for donations for the Mishkan. It's in this context that we read the next part of the story, which is really the main focus of today's class. And that is regarding the Nesim. The Nesim were the tribal princes. Um, basically, each tribe had a leader, one leader per tribe that represented the tribe. Think of it as perhaps like, um, I don't know, like states have a governor. So these were the governors, if you will, of, of the 12 tribes, 12 leaders, 12 princes, 12 tribal leaders that represented their tribes. And each of them was, uh, was hand-selected for the job. They, the Torah will tell us in a moment, which we'll see soon, they had not contributed at all for the Mishkan. And uh, at this point, as soon as it, they realized that all of the, the materials have been donated, at this point, there's a bit of, a, uh, of, uh, of, of, of some effort that's put in by these tribal leaders. Um, let me, uh, let's go to the next page and pull this up for us to see. All right. Text number two, the prince's gift. Uh, let's ask, let's see, who are we going to ask? Let's ask Paul. Paul, will you read please text number two? And every man with whom was found blue, purple, or crimson wool, linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, or tachesh skins brought them. Everyone who set aside an offering of silver or copper brought the offering for God, and everyone with whom acacia wood was found for any work of the service brought it. And every wise-hearted woman spun with her hands, and they brought spun material, blue, purple, and crimson wool and linen. And all the women whose hearts uplifted them with wisdom spun the goat hair. And the princess brought the shoam stones and filling stones for the ephod and for the shoshen. And the spice and the oil for lighting and for the anointing oil and for the incense. Perfect. Thank you. So what we see here, the Torah enumerates. All of the donations that were brought in, we, we heard before about the quantity of items, but these are the specific items that were brought in. We talked about the, the wool, the linen, the skins, etc., and silver and copper and gold and wood and all of this wonderful stuff. And at the end, it mentions the Nesim, the princes, right? The last two sentences, the princes brought the shoham stones and filling stones for the input and the Choshen. That's essentially the breastplate and the straps of the breastplate 
the the uh, the twelve gems that were utilized by the high priest in the breastplate that he wore um, in the in the Mishkan in the in the tabernacle. Okay, so that's what they brought, which evokes the question: Why are they mentioned last? What's going on over here? And so the R Rashi points this out, and Rashi bases it on a classic teaching of our sages in the Midrash that what happened was the Nisim, the princes, they had decided to wait until everybody else would donate what they donated and that they were going to then give whatever's missing. That was their plan. Let me stop sharing for a moment and let's talk about the plan for a second because we got we to we understand the plan. Their plan was that the general population should give what they give and then the shortfall they're going to cover. That was their plan. That was their intention. But what happened was, as we saw before, the plan pretty much backfired or, I don't know, it didn't go as planned. Why? Because there was nothing left to bring. The people had brought everything. And so then it seemed the princes had to scramble and pull together the shoham stones, the filling stones for the ephod and the choshen and some anointing oil, whatever it was. That's all that they, that they could bring because everything else had been taken. The way our sages understand this is as a negative. It's a negative that the princes waited until the end to offer, to, to, to contribute what they contributed. Let's see this in Rashi. We're going to read Rashi, and then I will ask four questions on Rashi and on what I really, essentially what I just told you. I'm going to ask four different questions. And I want you to think of your questions because maybe they're mine, maybe they're additional questions. And the more, the merrier when it comes to Torah study because questions are part of the, lear the learning process. I'm going to pull up my screen again. Let's jump right back into the text. All right, give me a moment. Let's pull this up. All right, Rashi. Here we go. We got, oops, don't know what just happened there. Hold on. Uno momento, please. Here we go. All right. Uh, let's see. Who are we going to ask to read? Dr. Maxi. Please read text number three, Rabbi Natan. Rabbi Natan said, what prompted the princes to donate for the dedication of the altar first while they did not donate first for the work of the Mishkan. This is what the princes said. Let the community donate what they will donate and whatever they are missing, we will complete. Since the community completed everything as it is said and the work was sufficient, the princes said, what are we to do? So they brought the Shoham stones, etc. Therefore, they brought donations first for the dedication of the altar. Inasmuch as they were lazy the first time, i.e. they did not immediately donate, a letter is missing from their name and... The word Vahanasim. Thank you. Is written instead of... The, well, it's the same pronunciation, but it basically it's written without... It's missing a letter. Instead of the additional the yud, yud. With missing, the additional yud. Okay. Exactly. It's missing a letter yud which indicates that they were lacking in their behavior. So let's unpack Rashi. And the truth is what Rashi is saying is that there were two instances of donations. 
there was a donation when they were constructing the tabernacle. And then there was a time after it was built that it was inaugurated. Opening day. And it says later on, we're going to read this later on in the Torah, in the book of Numbers. The Torah, uh, book of Numbers, the Torah will tell us that on the first 12 days of temple activity, which the first 12 days of the month of Nisan, the year 2449, right after the, so the temple was, the ribbon cutting ceremony was on the first day of Nisan. That was day one. And for the next 12 days, that day included the 12 tribes, the 12 tribal leaders brought 12 dedication offerings, each one on one of those 12 days. And that was their way of jumping at the opportunity. The temple is open. We're going to ju- we're going to bring the first offerings. Are you with me on that? The temple is open. The princess says, all right, the princess said, we're going first. There were communal offerings, brought, but as far as like individual offerings or they brought first. Why? Because last time they got burned. What happened? They wanted to wait till everybody gave and they were going to swoop in and be the heroes. And before you know it, everybody had donated everything. So this is why this is why the, 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 the leaders of the tribes brought, um, they, they made up for it the next time by bringing first. And by the way, we have, if you have a book, but text number four discusses from the book of Numbers, it's a, it's a, it's a citation of how the Torah describes the, the different offerings that they brought. You know what? Let me read it. I'm going to read it. It's a bit, um, it's a bit lengthy, but just to give you a picture of, of how much they donated when the temple was actually, the tabernacle was actually inaugurated, I think it's important to get that picture. So let's do that. All right. Um, here we go. This is going to be text number four. I'm, I'm reading this one. The chieftains, tribal leaders, brought offerings for the dedication of the altar on the day it was anointed. Again, first of Nisan 2449. The chieftains presented their offerings in front of the altar. This is after it's constructed, obviously. God said to Moses, one chieftain each day, one chieftain each day shall present his offering for the dedication of the altar. The one who brought his offering on the first day was Nachshon, the son of, of Aminiandab of the tribe of Judah. So listen to what he brought. His offering was one silver bowl weighing 130 shekels, one silver sprinkling basin weighing 70 shekels, according to the holy shekel, both filled with fine flour mixed with olive oil for a meal offering, one spoon weighing 10 shekels of gold filled with incense, but wait, there's more. Um, one young bull, one ram, one lamb in its first year for a burnt offering, one he goat for a sin offering, and for the peace offering, two oxen, five rams, five he goats, five lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Nachshon, the son of Aminadab. Clearly, this was a generous donation, a generous offering, a generous inauguration of the altar. <laughs> A brand new altar, this is a way to break it in, so to speak. Yeah, you buy your baseball glove as a kid, and it's all stiff, and it's hey, you put some oil in there, and you put a softball, and you tie it up with twine, you throw it under your mattress. Yeah, you roll over with a car, you get it worked in. This was their way of working in the Mishkan, working in the priest, working in the altar to get it going, but they went first. Rashi says, why'd they go first then? Because they went last earlier. Yeah. When it came to building the Mishkan, they went last. Why'd they go last? They had good intentions. Yeah, we'll make up whatever everyone else falls short on, but no one fell short. 
They had a scramble at the end, pulled together some shoham stones, right? But that was lacking. They were lazy, Rashi says. They were lazy in their behavior by donating last. Therefore, it's alluded to that the Nassim, their name, is written without the letter Yud. And this is the classic story that everybody knows. When you study Torah and Chumash and Rashi, this is the classic narrative that you get. But I have four questions. And you know that by now, because I just told you before we read this text that I have four questions. So what are your questions? Jump in. On this explanation about the, pre, about the tribal leaders, specifically about this, I don't mean questions about life. We'll save that for later, perhaps. But questions on this idea about the, about the, uh, the tribal leaders. What you got? Rabbi? Yes, Donna. But I'm a little struck that I feel like the Hoshan stones are ex actually extra special. Donna's <laughs> asking a great question. What do you mean they were scrambling? What do you mean they were left to the end? The Shoham stones are nothing to scoff at. It seems like that was a big deal. Excellent question. Good. Not one of my four, but that's why I opened it up. We're going to answer it tonight. I will answer that. I mean, we'll, we'll address it. You'll tell me if it's an answer. We're going to address it. Um, but excellent. Good. What else? What else? Let's get more, more questions up. The commentary says the princes were lazy. Yes. When they brought their offerings. So why should they be rewarded by being allowed to go first? Good. If they were lazy, then why be rewarded? I think the implication is because they were lazy the first time, it was uh, it was a wake-up call that next time they're not going to be lazy. But I hear your question. Your question is, well, maybe they should be penalized. And who says they should go first? Right? Good. Okay, good. Excellent. More questions. Any more questions? Do they all bring them at once or different times? And how do you choose what order they bring their gifts? For the altar offerings, for the when when they were dedicated to the altar, uh, I think they went with the, the the you know Judah first, and then the one that came up with the idea. I think it was I forget which tribe it was. Yeah, there was some sort of order, and then some birth order action. Um, but I want to actually focus on this part of the story, like re related to the donations for the building and them going last. Susan, I think you had a yeah a, a question. Yeah. Why was why is it such a negative that they waited until last? They said if there's a shortfall, we're we're going to make up for it. We'll make sure Excellent. that it gets done. Beautiful, great question. So why why are they lazy? Who says lazy? On the contrary, they're being very generous. They were willing to cover whatever was missing. Good. Good. Yes, Bev. Don't forget to unmute. You Person got it. You're supposed to run to do a mitzvah. You don't wait around and see what somebody else does first. And then uh, hold on. You're answering the question. I'm here for questions, not answers. Okay. I, I hear you. Good. But 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 let's 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 pile okay. up the questions. Okay. Pile up the questions. More questions. Any more questions? All right. Let me tell you. Yeah, Adina Malka, you got something? Sold. I just sold you the painting. You raise your hand. Boom. The auctioneer is like done. We gaveled. Psh. All right. No, you got you got some. I can't hear you. It seemed like um, by uh, by the leaders waiting that it gave the, the people a chance to express themselves 
for them to to bring like you know because if the leaders had brought everything that was needed then the people maybe the people would have been lazy all oh, the leaders will take care of us we don't have to do anything good so your question so let me phrase it in a question so your question is so why why is the letter missing from their name why is this a bad thing good i want to ask now the four questions that i have and i think some of them will overlap and i think also that there's a little bit of, uh, of nuance with some new ideas that we will address tonight as well. Question number one. Okay. Question number one of my questions is, so why did they wait until last to donate? What exactly was the rationale? We've, um, we've speculated as to what the rationale was, but what exactly was their rationale? Number one. Number two, and this is the most basic question i feel bad even asking it because it's so basic that it's going to be like oh it's such a question like it's such an obvious question you're ready for the obvious question that's so obvious that no one asked it it's so obvious that no one even bothered to ask it because you probably felt like you're missing something that's why you didn't ask it because you don't want to seem like you missed something and ask a question that has an obvious answer but it doesn't have an obvious answer and it's a great question but no one asked it you're ready it said that the people brought everything. So why were the Shoham stones left? Hey, oh, are you with me? You thought of that. I know you thought of that question. I know some of you thought of that question. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. The Torah literally says that the people brought everything. The Nisim, in fact, Rashi said, I'm not going to pull up my screen again. Rashi, I mean, I will, but not for that. Rashi said, since the community completed everything, as it, is said, as it is said, and the work was sufficient, the prince says, what are we to do? So they brought the Shoham stones. Are you with me in how that doesn't make a drop of sense? Because they saw that the work, the donations were complete. There was nothing left to do. So what they do? They brought the Shoham stones that were missing. <laughs> what is going on here? Talk about a contradiction. Are you with me in the question? This is a good question. This is some solid questioning. And I know that you thought of, I know, I'm sure some of you thought of the question, but it was like, oh, obviously I'm missing something. Shoham stones are a different category. Probably they donated other things, but not the Shoham stones. Maybe they were never told about the Shoham stones. No, no. Everything was there. Everything was donated. It was done. And yet they're bringing Shoham stones. How, what, where, when are those Shoham stones happening? That's my second question. Again, question number one, what's the deeper idea of, the, of the, these leaders waiting to the end? Question two, if everything was donated, what's with the Shoham stones, right? Why they need to give that even? Question number three, why are they being called lazy for giving last if we had that rationale? This is what was asked before uh, by some of you. If, um, if they had a rationale for giving last, you know, they're going to make up the shortfall. Why is it lazy for doing that? And finally, number four, if they had a good rationale, for whatever reason, the rationale was when it came to the donating of the tabernacle to give last, why, why did they change directions? Why did they alter, all puns intended, their course when it came to the altar to give there first? If they had a solid rationale for the construction donation going last, why didn't they go last also when the altar was being inaugurated? These my friends, are my four questions. These are not the four questions that will come at the Seder, which, by the way, totally not on topic, is coming up in just a few weeks. So 
Here is the point. The point, Chaz and Ben, jump in. Hold on, you got to unmute. You got it. I just sent you a button to unmute. All right. So earlier, it said, <coughs> sorry. Earlier, it said, at Big Day Hasrad Lisharet Bakodesh. So Big Day Hasrad means woven, woven clothing does not necessarily mean the AFO and what's contained in there. Okay. okay. So, 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 and, and it talks about the Kalim and the Kior and the Kano and Kal Echatser, but it doesn't, when it refers earlier to the clothing of the Kohen, it, it only refers to the woven clothing. Good. So you're so, suggesting maybe that they didn't donate the stones, and so it was indeed remaining. Right. Right, Good. they only donated clothing that were woven. Excellent, I'm with you. If that's the case, and that makes a lot of sense, if that's the case, though, then why does Rashi say that the Nassim saw that the work was completed? And, yeah, it's, and a so puzzle the stones. it's a puzzle, man. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a diok in Rashi, it's a nuance right. in Rashi. Rashi says they saw that it was done, so they gave the Shom stones. Mm -hmm. What was done? It, what, it clearly wasn't done mm -hmm. if they then brought the Shom stones. It's a self-contradiction. So what we're going to do now is look a little bit deeper. And the way I want to frame it is understanding pros and cons of going first or going last. Let's talk about this. Imagine a modern day campaign. Imagine a, imagine a modern day building campaign, a community center, a building, right? And so you're thinking about, you want to give, and you're thinking there are two options. Either you can give first or you can pledge to give whatever is missing. So which is better? The truth is each one, as I said a moment ago, has pros and cons, right? To go first, you can give a good energy, you can get the ball rolling on the project, but you may not necessarily know exactly how much is needed. I mean, I guess you could always give more later, but you at that point, there's, um, there's your, it, the, the giving is maybe a little bit more limited because it is, at the beginning when not everything is being known. Whereas if you tell, let's say the rabbi who's doing the campaign, you say, rabbi, I will cover whatever you need. That's perhaps a more generous offer. And that's though that though comes at the end, which means that each one has an advantage and a disadvantage. One is about energy, the advantage, there's more energy going first, but maybe there's more generosity going last. When it came to the Nassim, to the tribal princes, they could have gone first for the donation of the tabernacle, the Michigan building. They could have gone first. They could have gone last. You know, it, it could have gone either way. But here was, this was the rationale of the, the princes. The princes felt, and somebody mentioned this before, and I don't remember, and my apologies, because I don't remember who mentioned it. But the princes had another element. If it's just about giving, there's an advantage going first or last. But there's, another, there's another element here, the princes felt, and that is leadership. What does it mean to be a leader? And so the Nassim, the tribal princes, they read up all the great leadership books. 
They listened to all the leadership podcasts. They went to the leadership seminars. They stepped on hot coals and spent 70000 on a weekend. And I'm joking, obviously. And what they came away with was the following. That the greatest form of leadership is not thinking about yourself and being there for the others. And so they didn't even think what their donation should be. They didn't even think, wait a second, we have to get our stuff together. We got to make the order for the stuff. They weren't thinking in their own selfish terms. They were completely called Kulai, completely filled with the task of inspiring and encouraging the people to give. And that's why they were a leader, because they were all about the people. It's like, you know, uh, it, I'm trying to think of a good example, but it's about, it's not thinking about yourself. It's completely about the people. And so the focus was not, wait, 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 what am I going to give? But it was all about encouraging everyone to give. That was their, yes, Dr. Maxi. So my question is, is what about leading by example or why not being an enthusiastic giver as a leader? which would inspire people to give and maybe even give more than everything that they gave. Because you're, clearly you're making the point that somehow not everything was given. So good, which we're going to get to that nuance, which is an interesting piece of this puzzle soon. But you're right, 100%. You could inspire by giving first and inspire by action. They felt that for them... To go and start collecting and start purchasing and start the whole thing, getting involved in what they're going to give, they, they felt smacks slightly even of or smells a little selfish. But you have to give. You have to be the ones to give. They were completely about the people. How can I help you to give? What would you like to give? Can I take? Can I help you bring your thing? All about helping the other. And you're right. Would it have encouraged also by giving? Yes. But the point is their mindset was completely about um, helping others give. They were like, they, it wasn't about them. It was about helping others give. That was their overriding thought. So yes, there's an advantage of giving first, advantage of giving last, you know, as far as the generosity piece. But they were so selfless as leaders that they weren't even thinking about themselves. A parallel to this, a parallel to this, which is very intriguing, and, and we need to read this, um, comes from Moses himself. All right, you know what? I was about to share, but let me tell it to you outside first. So this goes back, goes back a few months to the days preceding Revelation at Sinai, right? Exodus, seven weeks of preparation, Mount Sinai, Revelation, foot of the mountain, God is speaking to the people. But before that, God tells Moses on top of the mountain, God says to Moses, go down and tell everybody to get ready. You got three days to get ready. Wash your clothes, stay pure, purify yourselves, whatever it is. You got three days to prep. Torah tells us that Moses goes down the mountain and, and, and relates that to the people. Let's jump in on the text. It is awesome. All right. You ready for this? Take a look. Take a look. Um, you would, I'm... I'm let, let, uh, keep on doing that let's skip one second let's skip the first part of that text 
Hold on. Here we go. Let's skip the first part of this text, the first one, two, three, four paragraphs. I summarize that. Look at the last paragraph here at the bottom of the page. It says, so Moses descended from the mountain to the people, and he prepared the people, and they washed their garments. Right? God told Moses what to tell the people, and Moses went down, and he went down from the mountain to the people. Take a look at what Rashi says. Um, I'm sorry. Rashi says, no, there is no Rashi here yet. Let's see. Here we go. Rashi, text 5b. From the mountain, it says Moses went from the mountain to the people. This teaches us, says Rashi, that Moses did not turn to his own affairs, but went directly from the mountain to the people. He didn't um, go home. He didn't have a shower. He didn't um, do some gardening. He didn't check his email. Nothing. He went straight from the mountain down to the people to relate to them what God had commanded him to tell them. That's what Rashi says. Straight from the mountain to the people. The Rebbe asks a question. You need to tell me that Moses went straight to the people. Of course he went to the people. What else was he doing? Gardening and emailing. Come on. Right? He's Moses. Of course he's going to go straight to the people. So the Rebbe explains that there's a much deeper meaning here. What it means is that Moses didn't even prepare himself spiritually first. He went straight to the people. Does that make sense what I just said? He went straight to help encourage and to help guide the people in their preparation. It wasn't about him. It was about the people. That was his mark of leadership. Take a look once again at the Rebbe's insight on this text number six. Seemingly, we can ask, says the Rebbe, what is so exceptional about the fact that Moses didn't take care of his own needs before carrying out a God-given mission? God-given mission to the Jewish people. The answer is this. Not taking care of his own needs means not only that he didn't take care of personal material needs, but that he didn't even take care of the needs pertinent to, to this very mission his spiritual preparations for receiving the Torah, including and specifically rendering himself fit to receive the Torah from Mount Sinai. He did not busy himself with personal preparation for receiving the Torah, not the physical stuff, the spiritual stuff. Rather, he went straight to help the people get ready for this experience. This is the sign of a leader, not thinking about themselves, thinking about those whom they are serving. And one, therefore, could very well understand what was the rationale of the Nassim, of the princes that did not donate till the end? What was their thought process? It wasn't so much, oh, we're going to ride in on a, you know, swoop in. They didn't have a savior complex saying, you know, we're going to save, you know, and rescue the project after it's, it, it falls short. That wasn't their thought. Their thought was, let's help the people. We're here for the people. Let's help the people donate. Let's help them understand how to donate, what to donate. It was all about the people. At the end, it turns out, oh, and their thought was at the end, they're going to give. That was their thought, but they, they weren't that planned out about it because the focus mainly was on those who, who they were serving. So this explains their thought process. It wasn't so much about the value of generosity at the end as much as it was simply 
not thinking about themselves. What is, uh, what's, what's the line about humility? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself a little bit less, right? It's not thinking like I'm a good for nothing. That's not humility. That's not true. What is humility? It's, it's not thinking about yourself so much. So they didn't think of themselves. Which then begs the question, so what was wrong? It sounds very altruistic. So why is there a letter missing from their name? Why are they called lazy? Seems like none of the above. Seems like they were following in the lead that Moses had set, the template of leadership that Moses had set forth for everyone for all time. They were following directly in that path. They were true leaders, not thinking of themselves. What did they do wrong? Before we answer that question, let's explore the other question, one of the other questions that we still have outstanding regarding the stones. How was it that if the people had donated everything, completed the work, that there were still stones to donate? So here is a very important explanation of this. And that is... And that is, oh, one, one second. Let, the point that I just shared with you, let's do a text. Let's see this inside. It's beautiful the way the, way the Rebbe writes this in his explanation. Um, there you go. Text number seven, Donna. Yes, please unmute and jump right in. Text number seven. Prince's first concern was to get the community to donate as much as they could. Only then did they start thinking about their own contribution for the Michigan, at which point they brought the Shoham stones. So again, it's not just that they were saying, oh, we're going to ride in and save the project when it falls short. It's they weren't even thinking about themselves. They weren't thinking about their own contributions. They were being selfless. They were thinking about the people. And so when it came to the end, they brought the Shoham stones. But again, that raises the question, if everything was brought, if everything was done, then why the Shoham stones? I'm going to give you a simple answer. Simple answer. There were two types of contributions that were brought for the Mishka. Most of them were items, but some of them came in the form of, can you finish the sentence? Most of the contributions were in the form of items, building materials. But some of the donations came in the form of cash. Cash. Oh, work. Cash and work. And work and hands and time and, and love and effort. But I'm talking about materials. Some of the materials came in in the material form, but some came in in the form of cash. Why did it come in the form of cash? Because not everybody had gold, silver, copper. Not everybody had goat skins and, and wool. Not everybody had that. So some people gave money. So here's the deal. And, and how many people, by the way, had shoham stones just tucked away for, for a rainy day? Think, just think about that. 12 specific stones. Who exactly had that? So I'll give you the answer. The people donated that in the form of cash. They gave the money for the building committee to buy those stones, to source them, right? There's a great online shop that you can get the Shoham stones from. I'm joking, right? Back in the day. And they bought those. They were going to buy those stones. 
Are you with me? Did, 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 I gave you all the information so far, but I don't mind just locking it down. You ready? So all the other items came in. Everything came in plus the cash for the Shoham stones. Did all the donations come in? Yes. Were all the donations completed? Yes. Were the Shoham stones physically in yet? No. Then you see him, the princes wake up and they realize, all right, everyone gave. All right, now it's our turn. There's nothing left. They start panicking. The only thing that's not physically in yet in its final form are the Shoham stones because it's in the cash in the coffers to buy the Shoham stones to order it. So they tell the temple, the, the, the building committee, don't buy the stones with that money. We'll donate the stones. Keep the money for other, other purposes, other utilities, other offerings, whatever it is, but we're going to donate the stones. Are you with me in how we answered the question? Yes. Everything was donated, all the materials. All the money was donated for the other stuff that wasn't yet directly donated. The princes, the only thing they could do was deliver the actual stones that were the they had the money for, but they didn't actually have in. Now, this is not you think, oh, that's an interesting idea. Where'd you get it from? It's based on, on Arachayim and it's based on the Rebbe's interpretation, which I'm going to share with you right now. Because you all asked so nicely, I do not have a problem sharing it with you. All right, here we go. Um, having trouble with this PDF program a little bit, but I am, I am definitely committed to getting it to work. So hold on, give me a second here. Let's see where we are. Um, we are definitely way, way far ahead. Ba, 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 9A. Here we go. The Rebbe says, when we say the community completed everything and the work was sufficient, we mean this. Even for items from the 13 special materials that they did not have on hand, Right. In other words, even the debt, like the stones, how, where were they going to get the stones from? No one had them. Right. Even the things they did not have on hand, the Jewish people met the need by donating lots of silver, et cetera, including the amount. That means money, cash of money, including the amount necessary to purchase the Shoham stones and the filling stones, et cetera. So, again, they donated not only the items, but the items that didn't have, they donated the cash value to purchase those items. All right. Now I'm going to stop sharing once again. And continue the narrative. So what happens? We've now answered a bunch of the questions, but we're still missing some core ideas. We explained so far what the Nisim, what the leaders were thinking. They weren't thinking about themselves. It was all about the people. They wake up. Come on. Oy, it's, all, it's all been donated. Good news is they don't have the stones in yet. They have the money, but they don't have the stones. So they say, all right, hold up. Keep the money. We're going to give the stones. Make sense so far? They donated the stones. The question is, so what they do wrong? What did they do wrong? What did they do wrong? So their donation wasn't really a donation because they didn't fill a need that was a real need because the money was already there for the stones. So although they gave the stones... It's not like without them giving, the stones wouldn't have happened. You with me on that? They had the money to buy it. They were one click away from purchasing those stones. They had the money. It was all donated. It's one, boop, it was in the cart. It was in the shopping cart. 
Just one, one little, they're ready to go. But it hadn't come in yet. So they donated the stones. Then see him, the, 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 the princes donated the stones. So did they fill a need? Not really. I mean, they gave the stones, but not really a need. So that's why maybe it wasn't the best, the ideal. But are they lazy? Why are we called lazy? Why is a letter missing from their name? Why are they taken to task in the commentaries for donating last? It seems like they had a good intention. At the end of the day, they did give something nice. Here is the missing final missing piece of information that will bring it all together and will reveal a shocking truth about leadership. Shocking counterintuitive truth about leadership. To understand this, we need to go back all the way to the beginning of this concept and understand why, why did they build a tabernacle in the first place? What, what was this project all about? Simple explanation is God said, build it. So we built it. But my question is, why did God say build it? And although I can't give you a definitive answer, I can tell you, because there are many angles on this brought down in, in, in various commentaries and even in scripture itself, I will tell you that one of the strong themes of the building of the Mishkan is that it was a, it was a form of atonement for the sin that had just happened, which is, we read about last week, the sin of the GC. The golden calf, right? The golden calf sin was the worst of the worst. And God had said, that's it, we're done. Moses said, we're not done, right? We're not done and, and worked to make sure that there's still a relationship. But the people were still apprehensive. The people were still concerned that maybe it wasn't still 100% close like it was before the relationship wasn't 100 like it was before god said all right build this mishkan build this tabernacle and i'll dwell there and when i'm there with my divine presence with the miracles that came along with the tabernacle you'll know that i am back you'll know that i am with you are you with me on this that's why according to some commentaries god commands the mishkan on yom kippur the day of atonement. God says, you are forgiven. Now build a Mishkan. Now build a tabernacle. And in the building of the Mishkan, the building of the tabernacle, you will see the embodiment of the atonement in the form of me coming back down to earth in this space. And you will know that once again, I am with you and I'm back and we're good. There was a sense of urgency in building the Mishkan. There was a sense of urgency in building this tabernacle because until the tabernacle was built, until the divine presence, the divine fire came down on the altar, no one was fully certain that God indeed was back with them. Are you with me on what I'm saying? There was an anticipation. There was a sense of urgency, of hurrying. That's why there was such a frantic pace of donations to build it to donate and build it quickly so that we'll know that God is with us. Throughout the seven days before the temple, for the ribbon cutting, Moses inaugurated the temple pre-inauguration for seven days. The book of Leviticus, this is discussed. Moses trains Aaron, his brother, the high priest, and his nephews, the priests, how to do the service. For seven days, there's training. 
And for all seven days, they're doing stuff on the altar, but the divine presence has not rested. The divine fire has not come down. And people were uneasy until it actually opened, opening day, and the fire came down. Well, more than one fire came down, but that's for another Torah portion. Okay? So that's when God, it was clear that God was with them. Sense of urgency. Can you imagine how the people felt? Not knowing if they were fully forgiven. Not knowing, yeah, you could say I forgive you, but are you willing to go on a road trip with me? Are you willing to hang out on vacation with me? Are you willing to hang out at my house? Or are we okay, but you know, I'm not, I'm not coming over anymore. Are you going to hang out here, God, or are you checking out? That was what was at stake here with the building of the Mishkan. The Rebbe says, to alleviate the concern of the people, this underlying dread, the fear, the uncertainty, are we forgiven or not? The princes should not have been thinking about, they should not have been consulting their manuals of leadership. Oh, a good leader is selfless, lets the people go first, doesn't focus on self. That is not what they should have been consulting. The leader should have known what is most important to the people right now, and that is getting the job done more quickly. And so the princess should have given at the beginning and in the middle and at the end and not being supportive of the people. It's not a time to be a leader. It's time to be a true leader. And I hope that difference is coming out. A leader is someone who puts the people first. A true leader is someone who responds to the call of the hour and is able to rip up the book and burn it when necessary. Are you with me on that? Does that make sense what I just said? So yeah, leadership is selfless and, and letting the people go first. That's great leadership. But right now, you know what the people need more than a good leader? They need a mishkan. They need God back on earth. They need to know that it's okay, that they've been forgiven. So give now, give soon, give later, give all the way through. Don't hold the project up because you're being a good leader. Does that make sense? Powerful idea. This is the Rebbe's idea. It's a powerful, and powerful, powerful idea. It reminds me of a story. Ah, I can't tell the story now. This is going to be a, for anyone who wants to stay on after the class. I'm going to have to wrap it up. Anyone who wants to stay after the class, I'm going to tell you a story about the Baal Shem Tov, one of my favorite Baal Shem Tov stories. After the class, as a bonus content, right? If you join in now, I'm kidding, you're on already. But bonus content for those that are joining in a few minutes as soon as we wrap. All right, so back to our story. This explains why the Nassim, why the leaders are considered to have made a mistake. They were thinking about themselves, but wait, they weren't thinking about themselves. They were thinking about the people. Yeah, because they were trying to be leaders. That means that they were thinking about themselves being leaders. Are you with me on that? You can be selfless and be selfish. That's the whole, that's the mind blowing concept today. You can be selfless and you can be selfish at the same time because you're enjoying the selflessness. You're, you're, you're getting a kick out of being so humble. It's like, look, I'm a good leader, right? No. Who wants you to be a leader now? Build a Mishkan. That's what needs to be done. Let me share the screen with you to read this in the Rebbe's words. Again, such an incredible concept. 
such a bold concept, such a daring concept. It's, it's only something that could come from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Take a look. I don't even know what's going on with this program. Um, let's see. This is going to be text 12. Let's see if I can find it here. Hold on. Bear with me, please. Here we go. You ready? There's no way to read this without getting excited. True. A leader's job is to make sure the Jewish people fulfill their responsibilities. But at the same time, the Rebbe says, the princes should have taken care to build the Mishkan quickly, making sure everything needed was ready as soon as possible. Therefore, in this case, waiting around for the community to donate what they will donate and whatever they are missing, we will complete, was out of place. Precisely because they were leaders, even as they encouraged the Jewish people to donate as much as they could, they ought to have simultaneously hurried to bring their own gift so that the Mishkan could be completed as soon as possible. Letting the people go first in this case was a mistake. In their desire to be good leaders, they dropped the ball. And they knew that for the dedication of the altar, and they donated first to show people that when it comes to God's service, you get first in line, you go to the front of the line, you jump at the opportunity, and you don't wait to the end, leading by example. This is similar to what Bev said at the beginning of the class, but I think it's, it's with, with uh, some, some other ideas here that I think really make it understandable, the difference between being a good leader and being a great leader. A good leader is humble, people first. A great leader will sometimes take the lead knowing that that's exactly what needs to be done. And so in conclusion, I'll tell you one more story. There was once a chassid of the second Rebbe, known as the Mittler Rebbe, Rabbi Dov Ber of Lubavitch. He was a disciple of this Rebbe, the second of the Chabad Rebbe's, who was tasked, the, the, the Rebbe tasked all of his disciples to go out into the country into the, throughout the land and to share the teachings of Hasidic philosophy. And so this person went out and he, he was a teacher. He was a gifted teacher. And he came back a little while later and he said to his Rebbe, I want to stop teaching. Why? Too successful. What's the problem? I'm becoming arrogant. Everyone tells me how great of a job I'm doing teaching. And, and you know what? It's getting to my head. So I'd rather be humble because I don't want to be arrogant. So I, I, I want to give this up. The, the, the Rebbe said to him, you should become like an onion, but you should still teach chassidus. In other words, you should, your arrogance should smell like an onion. I, some people like the smell of onions. I actually, whatever, some good fried onions, I'm on board. But it means you should have even a bad odor, theoretically. You should smell, but you should still teach chassidus. Don't let that stop you. In other words, it's not about you. Stop making this about you. <laughs> the Rebbe told so many people. These great, just, you can't make this stuff up. Some, the Rebbe once told somebody in college, said you should encourage your dorm, uh, you know, the people in your fraternity and, and, your, and your dorm and others to wrap tefillin every day. The fellow says, with, you know, I, I'm embarrassed to say this, but Rebbe, I don't put on tefillin myself every day. The Rebbe smiled and he told him, so, so, so why should they lose out because of what you're doing or not doing? In other words, why should that affect them? Who cares what you're doing or not doing? You got it, right? So it's, and I know the point may seem to be going back and forth, but the point is, it's not about us. It's not about us and the manual and the this manual, that, that manual. It's not about 
us having too much ego or too much humility. It's about getting the job done that's right in front of us. What's the task that's set before us? To make sure that this person puts out tefillin, that's what I need to do. If I'm putting out tefillin myself, it's irrelevant right now. This person, this year needs to put out tefillin, lay tefillin with him. Only the Rebbe could come up with that, with that approach, right? So you're a prince, you're a leader, a tribal leader back in the day, some 3,300 years ago. And you tell yourself, as a leader, I should really let the people go first. And the Rebbe says, I mean, Rashi says, the Rebbe explains, that's a mistake. Because why are you making this about you? You want to be a good leader, so you're letting them go first. It's not about you. Not in your arrogance, not in your humility. It's not about you at all. It's about the task at hand. The people are anxious. They're sitting on pins and needles, if that's the right expression. Right? They're, they, 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 they don't know what's happening. They don't know where they're holding. Get the Mishkan built so there's clarity. Bring them some relief to the tension. And so here's the message for all of us. All of the manuals are good. All of the rules are important. But sometimes you have to know when to break the rules. Sometimes you have to understand the spirit of the law and not just the law itself. Yeah, what's the spirit of good leadership? It's about the people. Sometimes the people don't need you to be a leader. They need you to help build the tabernacle a little bit faster. May we all respond to the need in front of us and not get stuck in our own heads and not get stuck in our own cheshbonot and our own calculations. Well, this, well, that, well, maybe this. Leave the calculations for another day. And if there's a job at hand, there's a task at hand that's important, let's get it done. And let us say, Amen. Thank you for joining me tonight for Torah Studies. I hope, I, you can probably tell, I'm a little bit excited. This topic to me is just everything. So I hope you enjoyed it as well. I want to tell a story. After the story, we can take some questions and comments, but I feel like I want to tell you a story. And by the way, if you have to jump out, if you have to, if you have to, um, if you have to go, you can go. That's fine. But, I, but I, I really want to tell you a story that's relevant to, today, to, to tonight's topic. Before I tell you the story, I need to mention Sunday evening, 7 p.m. David Lazan's mom is joining us. Wait, we have a Riva, a live Riva joining us right now. Sunday night, Dr. David's mom is joining us, Marion Blumenthal Lazan. She is a, a Holocaust survivor, an author, a speaker. I actually spoke with her tonight, just a few minutes ago. And I asked her, how many people has she shared her story with around the world? And she gave me a number that blew my mind. I said, I've heard it that it's a million. Is that correct? She said, no. I'm like, I thought so. She's like, it's about one and a half million. That's what she told me. I am just un just blown away at the, at the, um, just the, at how amazing she is. And David's dad is, is, is very much involved in in the in 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 all of the logistics and and for years in, in in his mom telling her story traveling with her in times of travel zooming with her in times of zooming etc also um david's mom mentioned and david mentioned in the chat just now as well that this story is appropriate for children anyone above the age of 10 ooh how old are you five, five. all right we'll have to give you the cliff notes but anyone over the 10 and over, it's appropriate for not only appropriate, it's appropriate. 
in both ways. Not only is it kosher, but it's it's a chiyuv. It's an obligation to hear living testimony from a survivor, a story of, of faith and a story of courage, of hope, resilience, and love. This is an incredible evening. Holocaust Remembrance Event, Faith and Fortitude, Sunday, 7 p.m. If you've already signed up RSVP'd, great. If not, please do so. If you know others, everyone knows people, right? We all know people. Please. We are people. Huh? We are people. We are people also. We know people because we are people. We know ourselves. So if you know anybody, please share it. Facebook, email, however you want to share. All right. That's Sunday night, 7 p.m. I want to tell you a story. One of my favorite Bashamtov stories. You ready? Settle in. It's not that long, but settle in because a good story needs, needs a breath. All right, here we go. I know a breath. It's like a snake breath. I like that. I like you. All right, back, back to our story. The Bashamtov had a disciple that he told the following. I want you, this is your job, he tells him. I want you to go around, travel around from town to town, village to village, city to city. And I want you to tell stories. That's it. You're going to tell Hasidic stories. That's your job. Remember I said before about the guy whose job was to teach Hasidic philosophy? This is earlier, a few generations prior, the Baal the founder of the Hasidic movement, who tells this disciple, this specific one, your job is to tell stories. He was a, a man who knew stories. And, um, and he was a good storyteller. And so he, he did the job for 10 years, for 10 years, he was traveling and telling stories until he hears one day, he hears that in a town that he'd never been before, because, you know, this is before the internet, it's hard, it's hard to know about these things, but he heard that in a town far away, there's a fellow who pays money to people for telling them stories of the Baal Shem Tov. He's like, this is a slam dunk. I'm a disciple of the Baal Shem Tov. I have all these stories in my re repertoire about my teacher, the Baal Shem Tov. And so I'm going to go to this town, meet this guy, tell the stories. I'm going to get paid. It's fantastic. I'm a storyteller. He's a story procurer. He, he likes purchasing stories. This is great. It's fantastic. A match made in Russia. So he travels to the town maybe Poland, travels to this town, finds the address of the fellow, and he, inv he gets invited for Shabbat. He says, I'm a storyteller. I'd like to spend the weekend at your home. No problem. Come to my house. Super happy. This guy paid something like 10 rubles per story, which I think yeah. back then was a lot of money. Would you like 10 rubles? Yeah. Who wouldn't want 10 rubles, right? What is that? I don't know. It's a currency. It's uh, uh, some money that you use back in the day or maybe even today. Back to our story. Now everyone's in Bitcoin. So, so this fellow, so Shabbos begins and they're enjoying the Friday night meal and they're all around the table and they do Kiddush and Hamotzi with the wine and the challah and they have a first fish course. It's, it's, it's wonderful. At a certain point, the host turns to the guest Rabbi Storyteller and says, Reb Story, go tell a story. Tell us a tale. Abba Shem Tov. And at that moment, at that moment, all of his stories, poof, disappear. 
He cannot, this is a guy that had hundreds of stories. He cannot, for the life of him, think of any story. He's stuck. He panics. He apologizes. He says, I'm sorry. The host smiles and says, don't worry. You're okay. It's fine. Tomorrow's another opportunity. Enjoy the meal. That next day comes. Prayers in the morning and then lunch. Same deal. Everyone's around the table for lunch. At some point, the host turns to the storyteller and says, we'd love to hear a story. The man had stories ready. At, after last night, he had stories ready. But at that moment again, everything disappeared. His mind went blank for the second time. He apologized profusely. The host says, don't worry. Don't worry. We have more opportunities. Comes to the third Shabbat meal, the meal that we eat between Mincha Mayrev toward the end of Shabbat, Shalashudas, the third meal. And again, they sit down and they have a light, light fare. They're eating. And before long, the host turns to the guest. Will you share a story? And once again, the stories are gone. And now Shabbat comes to a close. And now it's time for Avdallah. And Avdallah is happening. And it comes and goes. And the man says, I apologize, but I, you know, I, I tried three times. And I can't recall the story. And the man says, the host says, listen, it wasn't meant to be. And then as suddenly, as suddenly as the stories vanished, one story popped into his mind. One single story. He says, you know what? I just thought of one. Let me share it with you. The story goes, the story pertains to my teacher, my, my master, the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov, once traveled with nine of my fellow students, totaling 10, a minion, traveling to a certain town. And as was his way, he would tell Alexei, the wagon driver, turn around, turn around, turn around. And he turned around and the horses went on their own. Kfitzat haderach, a shortening of the road. Those of you that were part of the Kabbalah, the future class, know this in the first session, we talked about the Kfitzat haderach shortening of the road, miraculous um, warp speed travel. And before long, we found ourselves in this new town, unfamiliar. Ten of us, including the Baal Shem Tov. And we arrived in the Jewish village, and the streets were empty, not a sign of movement at all. All the houses were dark, and we were wondering, are there any Jews even that live here anymore? Vashemtev was confident, walked over to one house, and he knocked on the door. There was no answer. He knocked louder. On the other side of the door, they could hear furniture being shuffled, dragging benches, tables, bookcases being dragged around. And suddenly the door opens a crack, and then it opens all the way, and the host says, quickly, quickly, you guys are mashugi, you guys are crazy, come in, come in, come in, quickly. Slams the door, locks it, and puts all the furniture back. And at this point, everyone is wondering what's going on. And the fellow says, are you crazy for traveling now? Are you out of your minds? Ten Jewish people traveling in the middle of the town? Don't you know? This is Easter weekend. And on Easter weekend in our town, the bishop, who's a fierce anti-Semite, a fierce Jew hater, he gets up. And he riles the town to loot and pillage the Jewish neighborhood. He incites a pogrom 
every year on this weekend, a pogrom is incited and all the Jews go into barricade and hiding to try to escape the wrath and the brutality of this pogrom. That, hence the barricade, hence all the dark houses, hence people probably went out of town or were hiding somewhere. The Baal Shem Tov is unfazed this whole time. The students are a little bit nervous. The Baal Shem Tov is unfazed. This, remember, all this is a story that the fellow, the storyteller is telling the guy after Shabbat, after he forgot to tell many stories the whole weekend. Story in the story. All right, jump on for the rest of the story. So the man, the storyteller now continues the story. So the Baal Shem Tov turned to me. I was one of the 10. Bashantov turned to me and said, I want you to go to the town square where said bishop, said unfriendly, Jewish unfriendly bishop guy is actually right now delivering his sermon or whatever it's called, his, uh, his speech. I want you to go over to him in middle of the town square, on the stage, in middle of the speech, and tell him that the Bashantov wants to speak to him. He was very nervous, but how do you turn down a mission from the Baal Shem Tov? How do you turn down um, a, a mission from, 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 your, from your spiritual guy, the Baal Shem Tov? Baal Shem Tov said to do it, you do it. So the man heads out with fear to the town square, and he sees the bishop on the stage, and there's such commotion. I mean, there's such, um, everyone's so... Uh, enthralled by the bishop's fiery words, by the fiery sermon, that no one pays attention to this guy who striding toward the center of the town square. And at a certain point, he ascends the stairs of the, of the stage. And at that point, everyone, everyone, um, everyone uh, notices him. But unfazed, he walks over to the bishop and he whispers into his ear and he says, my master and teacher, the Baal Shem Tov, needs to meet with you urgently. He needs to speak with you. Immediately, the bishop's face changed. It became serious. Or, you know, a, diff a different look on his face. And he said, not now. He said, not now. I'm going to come later. But I will come. Well, the fellow went back to the Baal Shem Tov and he told him, Baal Shem Tov said, go back. And tell him there's no later. It's got to be now. It's got to be right now. He must come right now. So he returns to the center, turns to the square, goes over to the bishop. And the bishop, he tells the bishop, you have to come now. And the bishop says, okay. He stops the sermon, stops the speech. And he follows this Jew to where the Baal was with the other disciples in the house. They had a private meeting. And at the end of the meeting that took a long time, the bishop emerged from the, the room that the Bashant was meeting the bishop in, dressed in completely different clothes, and he kind of snuck out the house or just walked out the house and he hurried away. We were all, again, this is this student telling the story to this fellow. He said, we were all puzzled as to what happened. The Bashant to explained what had happened. What had happened was, is that... Um, this fellow, this bishop, was actually born a Jew. He was born a Jew. And at a young age, the story is, he was somehow either adopted or something happened, but he ended up in 
not Jewish circles. And he grew up to become this bishop, and he grew some for some reason, he developed this hate toward Jews, his own people. And so today I spoke with him, and I have uh, I've brought him to his senses. And he has embarked on a path of teshuva, a path of return to his people. So this is the story, the story that, the, that this uh, storyteller tells the host after Havdalah on this weekend of uh, attempted storytelling. The story of the bishop who was reformed, so to speak, or returned to his roots through the Baal intervention. And at this point, the man, the host says to the storyteller, now I have a story to tell you. You see, I am the bishop. I am the bishop. I was the one who was giving the sermon. I was the one who went to the Baal Shem Tov. I was the one who cried my eyes out. I was the one who put on different clothing. And the Baal Shem Tov told me, when I asked the Baal Shem Tov, how will I know that my tshuva, my repentance, is finally accepted on high? The Baal Shem Tov told me, when you hear your own story told to you by one of my disciples, then you'll know that you have been accepted, your truth has been accepted. When it comes full circle, when you hear your own story being told to you, then you know, then you know that your tshuva has been accepted. That's why I've been paying for stories all these years. I've been paying people to tell me stories about the Baal Shem Tov because I've been waiting to hear my story. When you came for Shabbat, I recognize you. You were the one that spoke to me on the stage in the town square. I had the conversation with you. You didn't recognize me, but I recognize you. And so I was so happy when you came, when you couldn't remember the story, though. I knew why you were here to tell me my story. But when you forgot the story, I was heartbroken. Maybe my tshuva, maybe my repentance wasn't accepted. That, but there was another chance. But when you forgot it by lunchtime again, by the second meal, I was again despondent. When you forgot it the third time, I gave up hope. I thought, I, perhaps I will never be worthy of God's forgiveness. I got this close, but maybe not. But now that you've told me my story after Havdalah, now I know indeed that God has accepted me back and God has accepted my full repentance, my full tshuva. My friends, can you imagine the anxiety of anticipation that this fellow had been living with for all these years, not knowing if he was fully embraced by God Almighty, waiting for that story, his own story to be told to him, to know that, yes, it's good and he's good. And in a similar way, what we explained tonight was the people were waiting with anxiety and anxious anticipation when will the tabernacle be built and when will God's presence come down to earth to know that indeed God had forgiven them completely and they were okay? And so for the tribal princes to hold that back from the people out of good leadership, textbook leadership, according to the commentaries, it's a crime, which is why the letter Yud, the divine letter is taken out of their names as written in scripture in this story. My friends, now you know the rest of the story. So here's the good news. Here's the good news. God loves you. 
God cares about you. And uh, all we need to do is do the task that's in front of us. All right. Hope you enjoyed the story. Hope you enjoyed the class. I, I've you like the story. Awesome. Good. It's kid approved as well. You liked it also, Reeves. Awesome. Come. Let's just show everybody how you're listening to the story. This is how Reeves listening to the story with headphones on. Right. That's how good the story is. Love that, um, folks. Um, I'm going to jump off. I know we didn't have much of a chance to have a to have a schmooze. But please forgive me. It's uh, it's a little bit late, and I've I've got to run. But I, I felt like I really wanted to share that story with you. Don't forget Sunday night. Please spread the word. Faith and fortitude with David's mom, Marion Blumenthal Azan, not to be missed. Um, otherwise, have a wonderful week. The rest of the week, Shabbat Shalom. Take care, everybody. Stay healthy, and refuah uh, shleim to all those who need it. Take care, everybody. Bye, everybody.